1: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry, And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And today's episode is a bit of history that is local to me and our offices in Atlanta, but I will confess a whole big blind spot... In my historical knowledge about it, uh, I had only the vaguest idea about there having been gold mining in Georgia. I did not know that there had been an actual gold rush here. And, of course, when I mentioned it to my husband who grew up in Georgia, he said, of course I knew that. We went on field trips to Dahlonega to learn about it, and they gave us little pieces of gold. And I was like, "I, I didn't grow up here, and I had no idea. So if you grew up in Georgia, you probably knew this was a thing, but it is also tied to some of the darkest parts of our country's history regarding the treatment of Native Americans. And I kind of suspect... That was not part of school field trips, Uh, so it's worth examining. And it also predates the California gold rush, which was, of course, a much bigger driver of long-term economic growth in that area than the Georgia gold rush was in northern Georgia. We talked about that a little bit in our Levi Strauss episode. But Georgia's, which happened 20 years earlier, was the first gold rush in U.S. history. So that is what we are talking about today.
0: How the gold rush started in Georgia is something of a mystery. There are competing stories regarding the origin point, but... To be clear before we get into any of those, the events that we're talking about today did take place in the 1800s. It's not as though nobody had ever seen gold in the area before. Spanish and French explorers made their way into North Georgia looking for gold in the 1500s. English explorers followed, and before them, there were Native Americans in the area. And early accounts of those European expeditions indicate that the Native population already knew that there were gold deposits in the area, also gold deposits in other parts of the southeast not a foreign idea.
1: Yeah, this was, uh, while the the rush is predicated on new discoveries of what they thought were going to be uh, really productive uh, lines, people knew already that there was gold in the area. But as for the 19th century, the most common of the, quote, discovery stories attributes the find to Benjamin Parks, who was living in what was Hall County at the time. That is now part of Lumpkin County. Parks claims that on October 27th, 1828, he found a nugget of gold simply on the ground at a place on his property in the county seat, which was known as Licklog at the time. That was refounded as Dahlonega in 1833 after a Cherokee word that meant golden or yellow. And this is a disputed story, though. Parks later claimed that he had found the gold in 1827, but this proved problematic as he almost immediately leased that land to a mining operation, but he didn't own that patch of land until mid-1828. So the story shifted around a little bit on the timeline. And additionally, there's no documentation in the form of a lease contract or anything similar to clarify the matter. And while he claimed that he had made nearly $24,000 in gold finds on his property, uh, when he sold that land a year later, the new owner only managed to find a very small amount.
0: One of the reasons that Parks' story has been cited so often is because he gave an interview to the Atlanta Constitution in 1894 about the discovery of gold in the state and the population boom that followed it. While this is often held up as a firsthand account, it's important to remember that Parks was in his 90s by that point. Six decades had passed since the time of the Georgia gold rush.
1: Yeah, I'm always a little astounded because people really do hold that up as, no, but we have an eyewitness account. And I'm like, that's a lot of time. <laughs> I don't remember what
0: happened yesterday, let right? alone when yeah. I am 90. Will I remember accurately what happened when I was 30?
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, we, uh, I have that moment all the time with friends or my spouse where we'll talk about some event that happened even like a couple months ago. And it's like, that's not what happened. No, it happened this way. And if we can't remember that, I just we all know the memory can be a bit dodgy. Uh, But that is just one of several stories. Another man named Jesse Hogan allegedly found gold in Ward's Creek. And yet another story is that a man named John Witheroods found the first piece of gold in Duke's Creek. And then there's a tale of a different man named Logan, not Jesse, a different, different person, that claims that an enslaved man who worked for Logan was actually the one who realized that the soil they saw as they passed through Georgia was similar to the soil that they had already seen gold in in other places. So there are a bunch of different stories, and these and other origin points have all been claimed over the years with varying degrees of credibility.
0: On August 1st, 1829, the Georgia Journal of Milledgeville, Georgia, ran a notice that the paper had been informed that, quote, two gold mines have just been discovered in this county, and preparations are making to bring these hidden treasures of the earth to use.
1: Stories of alluvial gold, Uh, that term alluvial doesn't necessarily mean this, but it's come to mean it in terms of gold. That's the gold that's found through panning on a river rather than mining because it has theoretically moved down a mountain through streams and through melting water uh, or ice that melted into water. Those stories also began to appear in local papers. And so soon, would-be prospectors started showing up in the state eager to try to make their fortune.
0: At this point, there had been gold finds in the Carolinas already which I know about because while Holly's husband was taking field trips to Dahlonega, I was taking field trips to Reed Gold Mine in North Carolina. This was the beginning of public knowledge that there was gold in Georgia as well. But by the fall, there were gold mines scattered all through North Georgia and independent prospectors had inundated the area. The first wave of gold hunters to move into the newly identified mining area were known as the 29ers.
1: And many of these early prospectors were involved in placer or deposit mining, meaning digging or panning for gold that had washed down from those hilly areas and mountains. And you didn't need much equipment for this kind of gold hunting, so solo prospectors could just sort of follow their instincts and search wherever they could find what looked like a lucrative spot. But eventually, more industrial forms of mining moved in, and teams could look for ore in tunnels dug underground.
0: The specific area where the gold was found was in part of the Cherokee Nation. While Cherokee peoples had lived in the southeast for hundreds of years, long before the white settlers, by the 1820s, there was already a movement among Georgia's white citizens to try to have the Cherokee removed, As the discovery of gold on Cherokee land became public knowledge, there was an even greater fervor to simply take that land away in the interest of financial gain for the non-Native peoples. In
1: 1828, the state of Georgia passed a group of laws that were intended to take away the rights of the Cherokee people in an effort to force them out of the state, basically to make it as inhospitable to live in the area as possible. And among these was a statement that Native Americans could not bring a legal suit against a white man nor could a Native American be a witness in any court case against a white man. So at that point, the legal door was open for Cherokees to be abused by white citizens with absolutely no legal recourse. And while the legislators behind these laws had hoped the federal government would move Native peoples out of the area, they had just grown tired of waiting. And so they basically wanted to make it miserable for any Cherokee who lived within state lines.
0: We'll get to the Cherokee Nation's response to this action, but first we are going to pause and have a quick word from one of our sponsors.
1: We had just talked about these laws that had been passed in Georgia to make life very difficult for Cherokee peoples living there. And in response, the Cherokee Nation sought an injunction against those laws from the Supreme Court. Cherokee Nation versus Georgia claimed that these new laws violated the treaties that were in place and had been negotiated between the Cherokee and the United States.
0: In the opinion written by Supreme Court Chief Justice John Marshall, he stated, quote, The court has bestowed its best attention on this question, and after mature deliberation, the majority is of opinion that an Indian tribe or nation within the United States is not a foreign state in the sense of the Constitution and cannot maintain an action in the courts of the United States. If it be true that the Cherokee Nation have rights this is not the tribunal in which those rights are to be asserted. If it be true that wrongs have been inflicted and that still greater are to be apprehended, this is not the tribunal which can redress the past or prevent the future. The motion for an injunction is denied.
1: The Indian Removal Act of 1830 was signed by President Andrew Jackson, who had been elected in 1828 around the same time that the state of Georgia had been getting impatient about Native Americans and whether the federal government would take action to push them off of their land. The Indian Removal Act stated that Native Americans living east of the Mississippi River were to be evicted from their land and moved to unsettled land west of the Mississippi. This, of course, was the act that eventually led to the Trail of Tears, but there were many Native Americans who resisted the removal early on, and additional legal battles were fought over the land. In February 1831, knowing the federal government wouldn't interfere, Surveyors began measuring the Cherokee land to be sectioned into plots for disbursement to white citizens.
0: In 1832, there was another court case that led the Supreme Court to examine the relationship between Native American nations and the state and federal government. With the case of Worcester v. Georgia, that went to the United States Supreme Court. In that case, a missionary named Samuel Austin Worcester was arrested for breaking a newly enacted Georgia law that prohibited white missionaries from living on Cherokee land. Worcester had been there as a guest and ally of the Cherokee Nation, and the lawsuit was filed with the intent of more clearly defining the rights of the Cherokee Nation and establish that they had a right to manage their own territory.
1: In a surprising contrast to the language in the denial of injunction that Marshall wrote in relation to Cherokee Nation versus Georgia— The finding in Worcester versus Georgia indicated that the Cherokee peoples were a nation of, quote, distinct, independent political communities retaining their original natural rights, as already laid out in a number of treaties that had been agreed upon with the Cherokee peoples. Thus, Georgia law could not overrule the agreements that the U.S. had negotiated.
0: This was a victory on paper, but it didn't actually help the Cherokee retain their land. Forcible removal began in 1838, but already, in going back to 1830, the state of Georgia had managed to seize parts of the Cherokee Nation and then redistribute it in parcels to white citizens.
1: That court case, Worcester versus Georgia, is actually has actually been cited so many times as the uh, recognition of the fact that Native American nations existed distinctly and should have their own rights. Um, but as Tracy said, it did not really help in this particular instance. So the manner in which these lots that had been taken and and parted out were assigned to owners was through a lottery system, which started in October 1832. This was one of eight land lotteries in the state of Georgia that took place between 1805 and 1833. So for $10, a hopeful landowner could enter the lottery. And their name was then put on a piece of paper and added to one barrel of possible draws. And then lot numbers for the available parcels were put into a second barrel. So a name and a lot number were drawn each time to match winners up with their new land holdings.
0: If they were drawn in one of the two 1832 lotteries which redistributed the Cherokee land, they would be issued a tract of land amounting to 40 acres. These lots were advertised as gold lots, but that name came with no guarantee that any gold would be found on any given parcel.
1: Some people opted to turn their good luck at winning a lottery plot to money right away rather than start a mining effort of their own. To that end, some lots were essentially flipped. In one instance a man who had won a lot turned his 10 dollars for his lottery ticket into 10,000 by immediately selling his newly acquired property and native americans were barred from participating in the lottery so there was no way that any of them could gain any land back
0: one of the lottery winners in 1832 was a woman named mary g franklin who was a widow as indicated by the story of the farmer who immediately flipped his land for profit, there were plenty of potential buyers for the lottery parcels, and Mary Franklin started getting offers almost as soon as she had been allotted her 40 acres. She did not take any of them, though, and instead opted to go inspect the property in person. There were already men hunting for gold on the lot, and she sent them packing, deciding that she and her family would work the land themselves.
1: This turned out to be a really lucrative decision. Soon, the Franklin Mine was turning a nice profit. So much so that Mary started buying up adjacent parcels of land and building herself a small mining empire. The Franklin Mine outlasted many other such ventures in the area, and the estimates on just how high the value of their mine's take was continues to be debated. A figure of $1,000 per day is often mentioned, but that is a completely unverified number.
0: From 1830 to 1837, almost $2 million worth of gold was moved from North Georgia to Philadelphia to be minted. Any gold finds were normally assessed at a local branch of the mint, and then the mint would issue a certificate to the owner that declared the value of the gold that had been submitted.
1: And at that point, the owner had a number of options. They could exchange that certificate for 80% of the value of their gold and get cash in return, Or they could wait approximately three months for the gold to be minted and then return to them in coins for the full amount. Or they could take the entirety in gold coins once the gold had been transferred to the larger mint office in Philadelphia and verified.
0: That 80% cash value option used the 20% difference as sort of an insurance policy in case the initial assessment had been erroneous and overestimated. There was also an option to take the 80% in cash and then get the other 20% after the Philadelphia Mint had completed its assessment.
1: Of course, this was not really an ideal situation, and we will talk about one of the early efforts to remedy it, as well as others that followed, following this quick little break for a sponsor that keeps our show going. The first private gold mint in the United States actually formed as a way to speed this process along and offer an option to miners and prospectors that was closer to home. So this was the mint of a silversmith named Templeton Reed who went by the name Temple. And he set up a small mint in Gainesville, Georgia, and he pressed coins in $2.50, $5, and $10 denominations.
0: The requirement for a pressed gold coin was that it had to contain 99% gold, And soon after Reed started his enterprise, he was accused of shorting his coins by adding filler. This caused all kinds of problems for Reed, and after beginning operation in mid-July of 1830, by mid-October of the same year, the Reed Mint was closed. Incidentally, the gold coins that were pressed by Reed, which later were tested and found to contain only 95% gold, are now highly sought after by collectors.
1: There are not a lot of them, running around and people want them. In
0: 1831,
1: another mint, not as close to the Georgia gold finds as Reed's Gainesville Press, but closer than Philadelphia, opened in Rutherfordton, North Carolina. And that mint was run by a man named Christopher Beckler. Unlike Reed, his enterprise had some longevity. Beckler ran his mint for almost 20 years until 1850, and he did not grapple with accusations of improperly minted coins as Reed had.
0: On June 28, 1834, President Andrew Jackson signed the Coinage Act of 1834. This act set specific quantities of metal to be included in coinage and also stated that, quote, all standard gold or silver deposited for coinage after the 31st of July next shall be paid for in coin under the direction of the Secretary of the Treasury within five days from the making of such deposit deducting from the amount of said deposit of gold and silver one-half of one per centum. This made the
1: process of getting minted coin, cash money, for a gold deposit much faster and easier, and it got rid of that 20% value deduction that people would previously had to have taken if they wanted the value of their gold in cash right away.
0: On March 3rd of the following year, the Mint Act of 1835 established new mints in three locations, stated as follows, quote, be it enacted by the Senate and House of Representatives of the United States of America in Congress assembled, that branches of the mint of the United States shall be established as follows, one branch at the city of New Orleans for the coinage of gold and silver, one branch at the town of Charlotte in Mecklenburg County in the state of North Carolina for the coinage of gold only, and one branch at or near Dahlonega in Lumpkin County in the state of Georgia also for the coinage of gold only. The establishment of the
1: Dahlonega Mint in 1835 was the result of an effort that had actually begun in 1833 to try to address the ongoing needs of the area and its gold miners. But even so, that wasn't an active office until 1838, when it was finally able to start accepting gold deposits. It opened on February 12, 1838, and pressed its first gold coins the following April.
0: The irony is that in the time that it had taken to petition for a mint in Georgia, the Georgia gold rush had largely played itself out. While the state geologist Matthew Stevenson assured miners that there was still more gold to be unearthed in the North Georgia mountains, the rush was over. Mark Twain's character Mulberry Sellers in the 1892 novel The American Claimant is said to be paraphrasing Stevenson when he utters the famous line, there's gold in them thar hills.
1: Yeah, the quote from Stevenson is is much less um <laughs> much less them thar? Ye much less them thar. It was kind of like, hey, there I believe there are still gold and there's still gold in the hills. <laughs> and then by the time it was told to Mark Twain, he got it secondhand, and by the time he wrote it as a character, it got a little more um color, we'll say. And in the late 1840s, when gold was discovered in California, no amount of assurance that there was still gold in the Georgia mountains could keep the Georgia gold industry alive. After a very brief gasp of breath in the form of hydraulic mining in the 1850s, the gold rush was more or less over in Georgia. And the Dahlonega Mint closed in 1860.
0: A second brief gold rush came and went at the turn of the century advancements in technology enabled some early finds, but long-term profitability eluded the companies who were trying to operate in the area.
1: And there was another very short 1930s gold mining effort in Georgia in what looked like it could be a post-Depression rebound. Some mines, including Mary Franklin's, were reopened, but by the end of the decade, even the last hangers-on had given up the effort, and it really did not count as a gold rush. It was kind of like an effort. (laughs)
0: Today, the Lumpkin County Courthouse that was built in 1836 is now home to the Dahlonega Gold Museum. The courthouse was restored, and it includes locally made original bricks that contain a small amount of gold. It's now a historic site and is part of the State Park Service.
1: Yeah, so you can go visit it, which is probably what Brian visited when he went, while he was in school, learning about these things that I did not learn about.
0: Yeah, I've been to (laughs) Dahlonega a few times, and... I can't recall if I've actually gone into the museum. I know I have been adjacent to it.
1: I do not think I have ever been to Dahlonega, which probably speaks horribly of me because it is like a 30-minute drive from my house.
0: It's really pretty. <laughs>
1: um, yeah, I just have never had occasion to to make the drive out there. Maybe now I will. Do you have some listener mail to close out our show? I do, and it is delightful. It's a wonderful gift from our listener, Barbara. Trades, dear Holly and Tracy, greetings from the UK. This is my second postcard to you. The first was Skellig Michael, which I remember. Thank you. In the recent podcast on the first celebrity chef, Antonin Karim, you mentioned the banquet he prepared for the Prince Regent in honor of the visit of Nicholas of Russia at the Royal Pavilion in Brighton. I remember my visit to the pavilion a few years ago that they sold souvenirs featuring the menu. I managed to revisit last week, and I bought you each a tea cloth. I hope you like them. If you ever come to the UK, you must visit the pavilion. The chandelier in the banqueting room took my breath away. It's spectacular. Uh, Thanks for such a fab podcast. Never stop. So she sent us these fabulous, I'm holding them up for Tracy to see, like tea towels. Oh, yay. That have the entire menu printed on them. Nice. that cool event, and they're really quite beautiful. So thank you, thank you, thank you so much, Barbara. These are absolutely lovely, and it was one of those moments where opening mail was an absolute treat. Uh, I love when you, when I get a package, and I'm like, I don't have any idea what is going on here. And then I couldn't find the card at first, and I was like, someone sent us something amazing, and I don't know who it was. So, whew, trauma averted. <laughs> uh- I found the card. <laughs> um, if you would like to write to us, you could do so at HistoryPodcast at HowStuffWorks.com. You can find us all over social media as Mist in History. You can find us online at mistinhistory.com where all of our episodes of the show that have ever existed, even before Tracy and I were part of it, are all available for you to peruse and enjoy. And you can get show notes for any of the ones that have happened in the recent past. I guess you could call the last five and a half years the recent past, where Tracy and I have been working on the show. Uh, So come and visit us at MissedInHistory.com. You can also subscribe to Stuff You Missed in History class on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or anywhere you get podcasts. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.
0: Live on NFL Network, ESPN Two, and streaming on NFL Plus. Terms and conditions apply to NFL Plus. Visit NFL.com/schedule release to learn more. Looking to part ways with complicated, expensive, and uncertain shipping?